Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we bless you today on this Easter day. We pray that the glory of your resurrection uh, would give joy to the church, especially to those newly uh, brought into the church. May you fill them with confidence, with joy, uh, with faith, hope, and love, and peace. Bless our class today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 So, we had kind of a big week. Anybody want to share anything? How was the vigil? Did not cry as much as I thought I would. <laughs> I Me think too. It was like pure joy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you cried. Everyone says that. I was like conflicted with am I going to cry or am I going to laugh? Like, smile. Like, <laughs> what's happening? It was incredible. It's a beautiful mass, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was going to last longer. I, I thought like, it was going to be three and a half hours, and I thought, like, man, this is going to be so long. and but like as halfway through, like I just I was like, oh, this continues. It was cool. Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? Really yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. My yeah. thoughts are good, so thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was awesome. Yeah. Isn't it powerful? It's like such, and the church's liturgy is so beautiful. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> one of my favorite images is that when we're in the darkness. Mm-hmm. See now, I couldn't cry at the official document. At the vigil, when the Easter candle, the Easter candle has two meanings. So the Easter candle is a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. And I love that image of us sitting in the dark with that one light. Love that. And actually, usually, so we had a, we had a lighting issue on Holy Saturday. When we turn the lights on, I, I usually don't turn them all the way on because it just feels better, a little dimmer. We have lighting issues, and then this the um, the room over here, our uh, boiler room, flooded during the Easter vigil. Now I am not the first person who jumps to like spiritual warfare things. I don't usually do that, and this might just be a coincidence. But interestingly enough, in the house I live at with my community, for some reason we never have flooding issues, except days that guys are ordained priests. Our basement is flooded three times on ordination days, never off of an ordination day. That flooded on in the middle of the Easter vigil, <clears throat> and the next day the company came out to look at stuff, and there was a there's a piece I don't even know what it is because I'm not good at that stuff, but some some guy came out and he was like looking at all the equipment down here and he was like, some metal pipe something I don't know exploded. <laughs> And he was asking our, like, folks, our maintenance guy, he was like, was there vandalism? Was there somebody down here messing with me? He was like, no. And the guy was like, yeah, I can tell it wasn't vandalism. And he's like, this piece literally exploded. And he was like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> he's like, this is weird. Which I was like, maybe that's just natural. I don't know. But I was like, maybe it's not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I thought, and you guys have been such a great RCA class this year. I was like, the vigil was super beautiful. And the fact that you guys are Catholics, I, Satan doesn't want that. Um, okay. Anything else anybody wants to share? Miracles in the 
I oftentimes think like um, the best moments of my life are here and my my favorite thing in life is when I get to incense the altar and everyone's singing I'm like this this is heaven love that I was one thing I'll share with you guys so during the the readings and things I was literally praying the cops wouldn't show up. I was like, there are so many people in this church. I'm like, I'm like, please, Jesus, like, hopefully Deborah doesn't show up and like shut down the Easter vigil. That would be bad. There was a lot of people. You know what's funny though? Before COVID, that was like average or maybe a little less than average. Yeah. So, okay, anything else? Okay, so we've got, we only have two classes left. It's always, it's always bittersweet at the end of RCIA because it's so wonderful to have you guys here. I don't know if you feel this way. I imagine you do. I love our time together. I love Wednesday nights. I'm always behind, so I'm also like, oh, crap. It's RCIA. I'm not ready. Never am. Um, so it's great to have Wednesday nights back, but I do miss our time together always. And my hope, the best thing you could possibly do is the people in this room is to connect with them. And if you're online, you know, is to like build community. And I, and very frankly, I want to help do that, but I can't do that on my own. I'm just, my, my kind of bandwidth is more than, it's past what it should be. And so everyone, I promise you, everyone wants community, but most people are unwilling to take a chance to build community. The best thing you could ever do is to build community. Um, so tonight, what do you want to talk about? So a couple options. Um, we could do random questions. We have the whole last quarter of the catechism to cover. <laughs> we could talk about that. <laughs> Um, the last quarter of the catechism is prayer. Um, we can talk about that. We haven't really finished moral issues. Um, so so if, if I have my choice, I would say let's talk a little bit about virtue and finish that off, which is really the, the heart and center of the moral life, and then jump to prayer. But if there's things that you guys really, if you're like, there's something I really want to just talk about, I am more than open to that. So. This is the part. And if you're online, Patrick and Steph aren't back yet, but they'll be here any minute. So you can send any questions there. Yeah, that was virtue and prayer. Okay. So when we talk about the moral life, morality at the end of the day is about what will make you happy. And we're talking about, we've talked a little bit about this, but happiness, what the world tells us, is that, and this is, if you understand this, you will understand the church's stances on so many things, and especially the controversial issues. Um, the podcast that Patrick and I do, um, Ryan, by the way, has like taken us to the next level. He's been amazing. Um, 
But we had an email today about someone asking about friends of, of his, and this guy on the East Coast, and he said, you know, I have two gay friends who got married, and it was beautiful. They adopted a child. The child would have been in a bad place, and like, in the love of their hearts, they adopted this kid. And it was really beautiful to just listen to the goodness these two men are doing. But at the end of the day, human nature, right? You can, you can have good intentions, right? You can have a good end. And these, these two men, they did something beautiful where they were like, this kid's in trouble. We're going to take him into our home. We're going to love him. But at the end of the day, marriage, that word... That word means something. Now imagine, like, so imagine if, like, my brother died. Imagine I'm not a priest. So I have, I have a couple of uncles who live together, and they're, like, um, <laughs> various kind of places in life, whatever, <clears throat> but they live together. Now imagine my, two of my uncles said, we encountered a kid who's in trouble, he has nowhere to go, we're going to take him and we're going to raise him in our home. Would that be a good thing? Yeah. Would that be a marriage? No. No. And, and once, the problem is, and you, if you have two men who are brothers who do that, and this is the way that a lot of this argument goes, is it says, look, there's a good outcome. Well, they love each other. Well, guess what? My, my two uncles love each other. Not in that way. But they love each other. They're brothers. Um, at the end of the day, right, like, what, that word has a meaning. Um, I don't even know how I got on this. But that's typical part for the course, right? That's how I roll. Um, so let's get back. So virtue. <laughs> don't laugh. Don't laugh. So... What, what morality is about is what will make you happy and not in the way of like, I had a great day today or like what, what the modern world tells us is that pleasure will make us happy. And that's tempting, right? Like for all of us, pleasure is, is a temptation. And there's a temptation to think that's what life is about. And, not, and I'm not talking about evil pleasures necessarily, right? Like, it's beautiful outside. What we should do after, when class ends, we should schedule next week. We should just do a barbecue. I was even thinking, just like a, that would work. That's probably even better, actually. But I was like, like, we should just go to, like, a pub and, like, come have a beer. I don't want to be outside in the summertime. Nothing better. But, like, Sam, like, so beautiful outside. I just want to sit and have a glass of wine and just relax. That's, that's pleasurable. And that brings a certain kind of happiness. But at the end of the day, what morality is about is ultimate happiness and flourishing. So, because I always take too long, let's just cut to the chase. Virtue is what will make you happy. And I want to do two things with this. So virtue is the closest thing you can have to a human happiness. Uh, but it's not enough. And we'll get to that. The only thing that can really make you happy is God. 
So we, you have to have, this is necessary but insufficient. Necessary but insufficient. So, what, again, what the Catholic Church believes, but not just the Catholic Church. Um, most of the Enlightenment thinkers believe this. Um, the ancient Greeks believe this. The ancient Romans believe this. Um, lots of people in Asia believe this. Lots of people in Africa. This is kind of a no-brainer in my mind. So can anyone tell me what can you define virtue? Not give an example of a virtue, but define it. I think we did this briefly. Yeah, you said it right. What is it? Good habit. It's a good habit, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so virtue is a good habit. And a simple way to think of this what morality is about is the same thing as it's, it's natural law. Right? We talked about the plant. You, if you, you, you can do all you want. You can put a plant in a closet and pour gasoline on it all you want, but it's not going to thrive. It might feel good in the moment, right? You might say, hey, you know what? I love nacho cheese Doritos. They give me pleasure, which they do. And, but if you eat nothing but cheese, nacho cheese Doritos, you'll be miserable. As so a human nature at the end of the day, a real authentic human happiness requires virtue. If you get this, a lot of the political issues today, a lot of the big hot topics in our, in our country, in our culture, this cuts right through all of them. Doesn't mean that false opinions in my mind don't have some truth in them. In fact, Whenever there's a false opinion, there's almost always something true in it. Almost always. But, at the end of the day, what makes a human being flourish is virtue. So, <clears throat> think of it this way. So, people today, and what virtue does, one of the things it does is it creates freedom. Virtue creates freedom. So, what the world tells us about freedom the world says freedom is I get to do whatever I want to do. Um, and let's just do this part now. We already did this. I remember, even if you don't, I know we did this. Um, so our virtue has a counterfeit and a opposite. So, um, so for everything that is, an, is a good habit, there's something that can look like the good habit, but it's actually a counterfeit. By the way, this is the most dangerous threat to virtue. Right? Like, for most people, not all, the opposite isn't too much of a threat. Right? So, for chastity, which is a virtue, we did this. What's the opposite of chastity? You're like, I have no idea. <laughs> I would never think of unchastity. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, there's different words for it. Promiscuity could be an easy one. Lust, you know, something like that. What's the counterfeit? I love it when you guys just start it. It's cute. Like, like self-proof. 
Well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I think it's related to that. Prudishness, right? So if you meet someone who's like, oh my gosh, and I encounter this in the Catholic community sometimes, they're like, there's people who come to me and they're like, FBI can never, I can never get someone. That would be, that would be wrong. I'm like, I'm like, no, you, you can kiss them. You probably shouldn't kiss everyone, but you, you, you can kiss them, right? Like, a counterfeit looks like the real deal, but, but the, the virtue is taking what is good and it's under control. So is it putting it to like an extreme? Yes, they're, they're extremes, exactly. So, right, so in chastity, the, um, the opposite is unchastity, promiscuity, lust, whatever you want to call it. Prudishness is the other side. So, so, so the great Catholic thinkers, by the way, all say this. St. Thomas Aquinas says this, is that someone who thinks, who is, there are people, probably at some point I was one of them, who are scared of sexual attraction. Sexual attraction is a good thing. You just want it to be under your control instead of it controlling you. If you're not attracted to, to people, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but something's probably wrong in that area of your life. Right? Um, okay, so freedom is what I want to get to. So freedom is a big thing. And <clears throat> the, what would be a counterfeit of freedom? What word would we give that? See, no, I would say you guys are hitting on the opposites. What looks like freedom, but what? Like recklessness. Recklessness, there's another word I'm looking for. Anarchy. It's related, but I'm looking for another word. I'm playing read my mind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well. You guys fail. License. You heard of license? Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> Carly. So what license means, this does not mean your driver's license. License means, in philosophical language, license means I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah, license just means, it, it literally just means I can do whatever I want. And our culture thinks that that's freedom. In Catholic thought, freedom is always tied to a good. So in other words, the, the, the person, let's go back to chastity, the person who says, look how free I am, I can sleep with whoever I want. That is not a free person. It's a counterfeit. So the opposite of freedom, right, would be something like enslavement, dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so here, here we go. So virtue turns out to be the thing that makes human beings flourish on a human level. So, so here's a great example of this. So when you start growing in virtue, you ha it looks like you have to get rid of your freedom. And here's the example I would use for this. Um, it's an old example we use in my days when I was a missionary. So if I say, you know what, I'm free. I'm a free person. I have total freedom. And if I go and I find a piano and I sit down at a piano, 
I'm like, I have total freedom, and I start playing that piano, what I find out is that I actually don't have freedom. Because if I sit down and just start playing whatever I want to play, I actually, I haven't learned piano. And so what happens when I sit down to a piano is like, if I want to play uh, Beethoven, I can't do it. And so one of the great secrets of life in general is that discipline is for the sake of freedom. So if you sit down, if you if you sit down and you like take piano lessons, if you are a 14-year-old girl and you're learning piano, and you have piano lessons, you don't feel very free, do you? You don't. You're like, I hate my parents. I don't want to do this. They don't respect my freedom. That's how you feel. Uh -huh. <clears throat> right? I never took piano lessons. I actually kind of still want to. But anyway, um, once, but once you have been trained by it, by the way, Hebrews um, chapter 13 talks about this. If you discipline yourself, it creates freedom. And this is the irony of the modern world, and not just the modern world, of all of human history after the fall, is that people who tend to say, I can do whatever the hell I want to do, they look like they have freedom. Again, all of the controversial moral issues of our time. I'm totally free. How dare you tell me what I can do and what I can't do? When you discipline yourself, it leads to freedom. So once you've done all of these piano lessons, right, and like Bernadette Prohaska, who is one of our music leaders here at Lords, is a classically trained pianist. And I am jealous as all hell of her. Right? For many reasons. But one, because she can play the piano. She has a freedom that I do not have. This is true in the moral life. So, the big four of, the, of virtues, you remember the big four? The cardinal virtues? Anybody? Okay, justice. Prudence is the hardest. Temperance and fortitude. Very really young. So, in the moral life, here's the thing: is that these are harder than you think they are. It's kind of like learning to play the piano. So I don't play piano; I play guitar. When I first learned to play the guitar in high school, I knew four chords maybe three and my family hated me and I hated myself <laughs> right and so like what happens when you learn to play the guitar is that you think like oh this can't be that hard and when you're a beginner there's like programs you learn in different things and it's like okay here's what a G chord looks like and you're like 
you look at like the, the diagram and then you look at your hand and you're like <laughs> <laughs> and there's like no way and so when I first learned guitar the first song I learned was called The Old Apartment by the Bare Naked Ladies very priestly song um, and it's three chords there's a fourth in the bridge but whatever it's three chords and so I sat in my parents living room and I was like you know, and I played those three chords for hours, and everyone, including myself, hated me. <laughs> and then you watch, you watch someone like um, just an amazing guitar player, right? You watch a Mark Knopfler, and their hands are just like, they make it look so easy. And what happens is you despair. You're like, I could never do that. But the only way you get good at anything, this, brothers and sisters, this is one of the keys to life. Do you want to find happiness in life? This is not just a Christian insight. Aristotle figured this out, and it's one of the reasons our society is crumbling, is because we have rejected this. The, one of the keys to life is virtue. And what happens is early on, you're, gonna, you're not going to encounter freedom. You're going to encounter discipline. Do you want to have chastity in your life? It stinks. I was telling these two women at the gym today, I was like, can we please just wear more clothes? Like, please. And it's like discipline. And there's a discipline for me as a priest of like, I'm attracted to women. And there are women wearing not much clothing. And I'm like, you're a priest. I said, girl. You're a priest. <laughs> Good Friday. <laughs> But what happens there is the more you do it, the more freedom you have. Just like learning an instrument, just like anything in life. Um, all these work that way. So, um, fortitude. Bless you. Most of us with fortitude or courage, if you have to tell someone something hard, most of us are terrified of that. There's someone in my life who's doing something wrong and I don't know how to tell them that and I'm absolutely terrified to tell them the truth. And it doesn't feel like freedom when you say, hey, hey brother, hey sister, um, the way you're behaving is not okay. People come to me all the time and say, hey Father Brian, would you tell someone so? I'm like, nope. Mm -hmm. You have to tell them. The first time you do that, it's awful. The more you do it, you grow in courage. You learn how to do it, how to face difficult situations in a way you couldn't have before. All right, temperance is the same way when you first go on a diet. It's really hard. The more you do it, you grow in strength around temperance. Okay, questions about virtue. Maybe one more point I want to make is a great way to contrast this is with values. People talk a lot about values. What's important to you? What do you value? And here's the thing. You can value the right things all you want. If you don't have virtue, it means nothing. 
So in marriage prep, one of the analogies I use with people all the time is that um, if you did a survey, you took a thousand couples who'd experienced adultery in their marriages, took a thousand of them, and you asked them if they valued fidelity in marriage, you would come back with a 99% rate that said we value fidelity. And they're not lying, by the way. People who commit adultery, almost always, they hate themselves. They know it was wrong. They know, it. they know that fidelity is important. They value it. Problem was, they did not have the virtue of fidelity. And so what, to bring this all together, what God wants to do in our life, if you go back to one of the things we covered early on, At the beginning of our time in our treatment of morality, your soul has three powers. You could say four if you throw memory in there like Augustine does. Um, but you have an intellect, which is how you know things. You have a will, which is how you uh, choose. choose things. And you have passion. And your passions, right, are not things you choose. They're not active. They are passive. Right? Like, people will come sometimes to confession. They're like, Father Brian, I was angry at so-and-so. And you could get to a place where you're, like, felt anger, and then you chose it. You said, I'm going to nurture my anger. And that could be a sin. But just to feel anger, oftentimes that's actually the proper response. Right? Like, we should be angry about abortion. We should be. Children are being murdered a million of them a year in our country because people want to have sex without consequences. A million. We're killing a million kids a year. We should be angry about that. That's okay. That's not a sin. But your passions are neutral. Sometimes you feel things. You feel fear. You feel desires. You feel hunger. You feel all kinds of things. But what happens in the Christian life is that our passions want to run the show. So what should happen is our intellect tells us what's right. And I say, I've thought through this. I see the world, and it's wrong to use other people. And I know that. My intellect tells me what's right and wrong. And I know it's wrong to use other people. And so your will should say, because I know that's wrong, I'm going to choose what's good. I'm going to choose to love other people and not to use them. But what happens oftentimes in our world when we fell from grace is that, yeah, I know that, and I know I should choose this, but I'd really like to use this person to get more money in my life. So I'm going to use this person to get ahead, and then I use my intellect and my will to justify my passions. That's not every decision we make. Hopefully it's not most of them. But I know I do that. I do things I know that are wrong. And so a lot of what virtue is about, virtue is about restoring the order of this and saying my passions aren't bad. They're, they're good. They're at least neutral. But they're not the steering wheel. They should not decide where I'm going in my life. 
right? Just because I feel fear or I feel envy or, you know, good passions, like I feel desires, healthy desires. Healthy desires are good. Um, but sometimes they get out of whack. A healthy desire is to be, is to be physically healthy, for instance. But you could be so obsessed with that good desire that that runs the show. And you say, you know what? I don't need to be home with my family because I need to get those washboard abs like Father Brian. That's what needs to happen. And you're like, That's I'm going to use my intellect to justify it. Okay, way too much. Questions, Ryan? Quick question, Ryan. I'm sorry, so I apologize. Scared. What's the difference between that passion and the passion of Christ? Like, it's the same word. Yeah. So passio also can mean, so we're using it in two different, I don't know why I wrote that again, but <laughs> it makes me feel powerful. <laughs> so so um, passion can mean in ancient languages to suffer. But it can also mean just something that moves you. So right now we're using, in this schema, we're using it in this sense. In Jesus' sense, that, that's what it's talking about. It could be. I mean, like, it's not so much here, honestly. It's just, it's a different kind of paradigm. It's kind of talk, like talking about, like, numbers versus colors. But Jesus, he brought this into this, right? Because Jesus tells us that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. So Jesus knew that, that he was going to suffer for the world, and he chose it. And think of, and think of Jesus' life. It's a great way to do this, actually. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has fear. In his human nature, there's fear, right? So he's in Gethsemane, he says, and the cross is coming, and he says, Father, if it is possible, let this come pass, but not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus was able to take his passions, his fear, and say, this is real in my life, but I submit it to the will of God. To the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah, Carly. I have another question. Um, so you mentioned like morality is the key to happiness. Yep. But like, I guess my question is, is that really the goal? And like, even if you are someone who lives like a fully virtuous life, but you don't know God, like, are you still going to be happy? Good. Yeah, the answer is no. <clears throat> so. So is the goal happiness? In some sense, the goal is happiness, but not in the sense of um, pleasure or like, and, and I was talking about this in the podcast with Patrick today. There's a surface level happiness that means like, I got a promotion, I have washboard abs, my girlfriend's really hot, like whatever. Those, none of those things are bad, by the way. They're all good. But that's not the kind of happiness that God offers us. Right? The, the kind of happiness God offers us is a million times deeper. And so you're, you're correct. So Aristotle, in his treatment of this, and let, let's do the first, first things first. We did this before, but let's just hit it again. Repetition is the mother of learning and virtue. Right? The way you get a good habit is by repeating it. So I want you to remember this. If you are like, I have a hard time telling the truth, you know how you grow in that? 
is you start telling the truth over and over and over and over, and you start small. So you're late to things, like I always am. And when I show up late, you know, my Sacrosons are like, FB, what happened? And I'm like, I hit, I hit three deer driving across the parking lot, right? <laughs> no, you just tell the truth. You say, you know what? I'm really bad with time, and I always leave later than I should. And I'm sorry, I'm going to try to work on it. It's hard to say sometimes. When you do it in small ways, it's kind of like playing the guitar. When I started playing guitar, I knew three chords. And now I'm not like an amazing guitarist. But I'm not bad. And like things that were hard before are easy now. Telling the truth becomes easy. So what Aristotle would say, Carly, is that you can't be happy without these things, though. So um, if you can't have a person who has a really flourishing life if a person is not prudent, just, temperate, and courageous. If you're not a person of justice, if you treat other people as objects to be used, I don't care how much else you have in your life, you will never be happy. I promise you that. But this is a great Christian insight. So Aristotle would say, right there, Aristotle says virtue equals happiness. The Christian insight is it's not enough. And this has been, so the, the greatest critique of Aristotle's treatment of all this is that by Aristotle's account, not a huge percentage of the population, but a certain percentage of human beings I don't know the percentage, Aristotle doesn't give that, but let's just say, let's say 13%. By Aristotle's account, there should be some, some percentage, let's say it's 13, that are insanely happy. Constantly, regularly, they have storms, they get in the wrong lane, People behave badly towards them. That all happens, but at the end of the day, there's a certain percentage of people, according to Aristotle, that are just going to be insanely happy. Human history says that doesn't happen. And this is, ah, oh, this is so good. This is why we never get anywhere. St. Thomas Aquinas has, like, one of my favorite lines ever. So St. Thomas Aquinas says, perfect happiness in this life is impossible. I know what you're thinking. Don't laugh at me. Oh, he's not laughing at me. Um, that sounds like a melancholic line. And I'm like, I love that line because life sucks. Right? <laughs> like, that's not what St. Thomas is saying. But every single one of you in this room wonders why you're not more happy than you are. And I wonder that all the time. And people come to me all the time. And everything could be right in their life. They could be like, I'm financially doing well. I have a wonderful marriage. I have great kids. I have faith. I have all these things. I'm just, I'm just not fully there. So St. Thomas says, if you can be reasonably happy in this life. By the way, this is one more reason why I will, could never, ever, ever be an atheist. 
ever. Right, by, by an atheistic account, we should just be like animals or trees where as long as we have enough natural things to fulfill us, great. No one's that way. And so this is Augustine's insight and the New Testament and the Old Testament. So Augustine says, uh, in the beginning of the Confessions, he says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Love that. And so your heart, and you should know this, it's like, like these guys are engaged. Woo! <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Which is like one of the best things that can ever happen in your life, right? It's a beautiful thing. Someone loves you enough to say, I want to marry you. That's beautiful. Um, and a really good, healthy marriage can bring you a reasonable amount of happiness. But your heart will still say, isn't there something more? And this is the Christian insight. Is it God? You will never be fully happy in this life. I always think I'm going to be. I've given sermons on this. There is one sermon I gave, and then we got to move to a different topic. But um, I gave one sermon where I was like, I love playing guitar. And so I was like, man, I've always played acoustic. But I was like, man, you know what? It would just be fun to play electric. And I was like, I should get an electric guitar. I'm like, maybe that would make me happy. And I preached on this, and I was like talking about Augustine's line. I was like, but I know it'd be really cool for a little while, and I'd be like rocking out, priest, little solo. <laughs> you know? And then after like a month, I'd be used to it, and I'd be like, this is cool. I like it. It's great. What's next? So my staff, it was so funny. The next day, someone dropped an electric guitar off on my doorstep. And so my staff at the church is like, FB, would you please tell everyone you just want a car? <laughs> and they're like, if you just name these things. But anyway, you get the point. So the Christian idea is that there's a human happiness, and Aristotle's right. He's not wrong. There is a human happiness, and if you don't, if you don't have virtue, no amount of anything else is going to make you happy. You can't become a saint and be intemperate. Or unjust. You can't do that. You. This is the baseline, but it's not enough. It's necessary but insufficient. It's not, can I answer it? Yeah. yeah. So would Jesus ha perfectly happy here? That's a great question. I would say. I mean, I think the way the church would answer that was Jesus perfectly happy here would be in his divine nature, yes, but in his human nature, no. And so if you like, and, and think about that, right? Like. There's times in Jesus' life where he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem when he, when he comes to it at the end of his life. Right? The suffering on the cross. Like, but in his divine nature, he's perfectly united to the Father. So there, there's a both and there. Is it because we're just not perfect? Kind of well, it's because perfect happiness is it's consistent with this. Perfect happiness. And this, this is what I always want to scream at people is that we think, like, there's a temptation to think, if I just give up the things I want to have in this life, I can be happy in the next life. Right? Did anybody ever think that? Thank you. Three of us. Four. Um, all of you thought that. Right? And 
there's a temptation in Christianity about if I just give up what I want, I could be happy later and get the things I want later. That's not Christianity. Christianity says the things that you think will make you happy are counterfeit. And they will never make you happy. And Hollywood has a million examples of that being true. Right? <clears throat> the, thing that will, the only thing that will ultimately make you happy is God. So Jesus has perfect happiness because he is perfectly united to the Father in his divine nature. But in his human nature, and this, by the way, the incarnation, this is way too deep, as always. In the incarnation, think of what Jesus did. Jesus took on a limitation for our salvation. He took on the ability to suffer, the ability to be separated from God in his human nature. Now, he never sinned. You have to be careful. I could definitely utter heresy right here. But there's something in that dynamic happening in who he is. So. Uh, so this was kind of circling back to what we were discussing even before this. Yep. Um, how you were talking about on your podcast um, about this gentleman who adopted the child. Um, yep. So I've kind of always wanted to kind of ask the priest this, but I've kind of lived in ignorance as well as a little. Mm -hmm. Do we have a duty? Are we committing a sin if we don't? to those people in our lives, um, whether gay, whether friends living, you know, promiscuously, yep. are we, as Catholics, required to speak to them about that? Or is it coming back to, we're not supposed to judge, God is, you know, and it's not really judgment, it's, right. is that on us? Is that a sin that we're so, committing yeah. by? So I'm going to try to repeat this for our studio audience. Our, no, you are the studio audience. For our online audience. So when we have people in our lives who are not living the truth, do we have an obligation to correct them, to speak to them, to kind of tell them the truth about this? Or is it, are we to withhold judgment? How does this work? So a couple quick things. Number one, the, when people say, do not judge, and they quote Jesus, almost 100% of the time they are misquoting him. And the reason they are is Jesus is not asking us to withhold judgment on actions. Right? So you, with judgment, you, you have to judge actions. You have to. Right, if, if someone runs a stop sign, just blazes through it, and you're like, what, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, hey, Jesus said don't judge. <laughs> right, no, that's a wrong action. And Jesus judges actions all through his life, all the New Testament does. You actually must judge actions. What you have to withhold on is people. That's what that that quotation is about is that you don't know a person's heart right like I have no idea what's happened and you might say so I can say to people hey you cheat on your wife I'm, I, when people cheat on their wives I'm not like hey you know what I, I kind of feel like that was bad but hey Jesus said don't judge so you make your own decision like no of course not 
I don't know what happened in that person's life. Right? I don't know how weak they are, what sins, what obstacles they've had. I can't say that's a bad person, and this person is like not worthy of God or whatever else. But I can say that was a hundred percent that's a bad action. The second point of your question is this. <laughs> so there, there's a tension here. So James, and I forget the exact verse, but in James 4, uh, I want to say 13, but let's just keep rolling because time's short. In James 4, St. James says, Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now that's what we call a sin of omission. There are sins in our life where, like, I know I should have done that. At the same time, and here's, this is the biggest point I want to make about all of this, God cannot require us, and the church teaches this, to do all good things. Right? Like, like, I know it is good to move to China and to preach the gospel, but I am not required to do all good things. Right? I'm, I'm required to do the goods that are necessary for my life. Um, and here's the final thing I would say on this with your friends, right? The worst thing you can do, right, if you're like, I just went to RCI with Father Brian, and I just found out you guys are living in sin, let's talk about it. <laughs> you know? like, bad idea. Don't do that. Here's the good news, and here's the best way to understand this. And we've done this, but this is a great ending point kind of for morality, is that... Um, in your life, the way the gospel works, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the way God works in our life is that salvation or love, let's just say love, love goes before the law. If there's one mistake that Catholics especially make, it's this. And so, if you think back to our Exodus paradigm, right? In Exodus chapter 12 is the Passover, 14 is the Red Sea. The law, the Ten Commandments, come in Exodus chapter 20. In your life, when you two are married, with your kids, you will love your children when they're in the womb. Right? Love goes first. Critical, yeah, right? Um, so St. Paul says, Yes. So in, this is in First uh, Corinthians six. Um, so, in the church, there should be a stricter discipline, a more strict discipline. And if we have time for this, this is this is a powerful thing. In First Corinthians six, Paul Paul kind of says, "Look, people outside the church, we need to preach the cross. You are you are loved." But the same is the same paradigm, right? Of like with with your kids when you have kids. Like, when other kids' kids, other kids' kids, other people's kids misbehave, you're not going to like it, but generally you're not going to discipline them. But your kids, you will. And that's very much at the heart of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6, is that outside the church, if you're talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus, 
And this is tough right now in Catholicism. When you, you guys coming into the church, the weird situation we find ourselves in in 2021 is there's a lot of people who go to church who have not yet really decided that their life belongs to Christ. That's a different context than Paul had. But at, but at a certain point, if you are someone who loves Jesus, and you know you were redeemed on the cross, brother, there's a law. And it's not because God doesn't love you, it's because he does. And so in 1 Corinthians 6 and 5, there's a, a member of the church in Corinth who has been in a sexually active relationship with his mother-in-law. And Paul has no problem saying, kick him out. And, and he says, and he doesn't mince words, he's like, immediately. And his point is not because we don't love this person, it's because we do. And we're serious enough about you that following God means something. And there are certain things, and you'll say this to your kids. You will say to your kids, my mom would always say this, when I was a teenager, I remember in high school, there was, there was this one weekend I remember a bunch of my friends were going to the mountains to one of their friends' cabins. Never means cabin in Colorado. Condo, whatever. They're up to a mountain house, and I'm like, hey, Mom, um, can I go with Eric up to the mountains? He's like, and my mom's like, well, well Brian, who's gone? I'm like, you know, Eric and Matt and Josh and, you know, like four girls. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, hell no, you're not going. <laughs> Like, of course you're not going. And I was like, Mom, the Schmitz are allowing it, and the Ringers are allowing it, and the Andersons are allowing it. And her response was, you are not a Schmidt. You are not a Ringer. You are not an Anderson. You are a Larkin. Sit your ass down. <laughs> she didn't say that. She never would. <laughs> but that's kind of what she said. And this is the point, right? Is that like, once you're in the covenant, and I could go on this, on this forever, but... When we went back to justification, this is all the same thing. And in justification, what happens is God saves the Jews out of slavery. He brings them to a land, and there is a law. And when the Jews break the law in a serious enough way, they go to exile. That's what, that's what serious sin does to us. Right? And I'm not talking about I'm, I'm weak and God, I just struggle with this sin and I'm weak. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I will be pro-abortion and I just don't give enough. I will be pro-whatever the world tells me and I just don't give enough. Dad cannot be in church. So something like that. Should I prayer? Yes. Okay, so next week what we're going to do is I want to talk, to, next week's probably more important. Next week we're going to talk about contemplative prayer, which is the, if there's one, how do I say this? There's, there's a couple big things you need once you're done with RCIA. Assuming you will be at Mass every Sunday, unless you have a serious reason. Um, you'll be going to confession, 
on a regular basis, especially if you have a serious sin. You need community. That's, that's maybe the most important thing, at least to start with. Um, you need some kind of intellectual growth in your faith. You need to be reading a book. You need to be in a Bible study. Or some kind of friendship where someone can talk with you about, like, gosh, I just don't understand this. Or, like, let's talk about the gospel or about St. Paul's letter to the Romans or whatever it is. But the third thing you need is a real prayer life. Not surface level. Not a half-assed prayer life, but a real prayer life. And we'll talk more in detail about that next week. What I want to do this week is what the church does in the fourth pillar, is it walks us through the Our Father. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' disciples, they say, teach us how to pray. And if you're coming from a Protestant tradition, um, a lot of Protestants are like, well, we have these like formal prayers, but what about the prayer of the heart? That's next week. We'll go deeper into that, and that is important. But when Jesus, when the apostles ask him how to pray, he gives them a formula prayer. He doesn't say, open your heart, think about what you're, you're like feeling, and tell God about it. He doesn't say that. He says, pray like this. Okay. So the Our Father. The Our Father is freaking amazing. It will blow your mind. Um, so the Our Father, there are what we call petitions. A petition is when we ask for something from God. Does anybody know how many petitions there are in the Our Father? Never thought about it before. Five, six. There are seven. Not exactly coincidences, right? So there are seven petitions in the Our Father. And what I want to do for you is like when we talked about the Mass, you could go to Mass every Sunday for the rest of your life and get very little out of it if you don't own the prayers and open your heart and your soul to it. Same thing with the Our Father. I pray the Our Father uh, at least three times every single day, usually much more than that every single day. And it's very easy for us to just kind of say the words, mean nothing. It's kind of like, right, those of you who are married, it's like if you've been married a long time, it's very easy to say to your spouse, hey, love you, which is fine. It's okay to just say that. Nothing wrong with it. But we all know, like, there's a way that you can say that to your spouse where you open your heart to that and you really mean it. And you own it. The Our Father and the Mass are both very much like that. Okay, so there are seven petitions. Um, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So let's start with that. <clears throat> so, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's name is holy in two ways in the Old Testament. By the way, the Our Father, we're going to talk about this tonight, the Our Father is an Exodus prayer. And so the, the New Testament is very much about the Exodus. The Our Father builds on the Exodus story. So, our Father, hallowed be thy, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Um, there's two ways in the Old Testament that God's name is in vain. One is the way we think of it, which is when we literally say the, the words. And I would, this isn't an important, that important of a point, but I'm just going to make it anyways, is that a lot of people in the, in the church think that saying God is taking the Lord's name in vain. Is taking the Lord's name in vain. I do not believe that. I absolutely don't. Now, that doesn't mean it's a good thing to. It doesn't mean it's a good thing to run around being like, step your tone, you just shout out, oh, God. But the context for this is in Exodus chapter 20 when God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God is not his name. And Genesis and Exodus make a massive deal out of this. God is a title. God's name is revealed in Exodus 3.14. And his name, does anybody know? We say with reverence. What is God's name? It's Yahweh. And to this day, we hold that name in reverence forever. So in Exodus 3.14, God gives his name to Moses, and he makes it, go read that tonight. And God says to all the other patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I told them, I revealed myself, as he says, as God. In the Hebrew here, he says, Adonai, or El Shaddai, or uh, El Elohim, but my name, Yahweh, I did not reveal to them. By the way, the burning bush in Exodus 3.14 is the same place where the Ten Commandments have. It's Mount Sinai, same place. So I don't think, and I'm not, lest anyone get me wrong, I do not think, don't go home and be like, Father Brian said I can just go around yelling God all I want. That's not what I'm saying. But I also don't want you, I think this, like, you know, we talk about virtue, sometimes there's a counterfeit of the virtue. That name we hold in reverence, I still don't go around to saying God willy-nilly. I don't think that's a healthy thing. I don't. It still re refers to the same person. But I don't want you to be scrupulous. I want you to understand what Scripture means. In Philippians chapter 2, 11... Philippians 2.11 is a famous hymn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself, uh, taking on human form. And being found human in appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him. Are you impressed yet? God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above all names. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the name Yahweh, G 
Jesus is a derivative of Yahweh. It means Yahweh saves. So, okay, so that's the first thing. So, as Christians, hallowed be thy name. Some of you probably just have the habit of this. Almost certainly some of you do. That's okay, and it's not okay. So, I used to have a habit of saying Jesus' name as a swear word when I was in high school. And when I started taking my faith seriously, I wanted to overcome the bad habit, the vice of doing that. And it was hard. So it might take you time. That's okay. God understands these things. But you need to work at that. If you have that habit, stop it. And what helped me was I started thinking about if someone used my mother's name as a swear word. If you use my mother's name as a swear word, I love you all, but I will come after you. Right? Like I and like I do this with Jesus' name now. Like I was at the gym as an early priest, one of my favorite stories. And I was doing pull-ups, and this guy walked behind me and he took Jesus' name in vain. And he was like twice my size. I jumped off the pull-up bar and I chewed him out. <laughs> I just and I did, I was just like, How dare you think that's okay? And I just laid into him and he walked off. And I bet you that guy thought more seriously about that. If someone took your mother's name and used it as a swear word, you would be furious. The person who bled on the cross for you is much greater than your mother. We should take that seriously. Okay, second one is how you live. In the Old Testament, all over the place, prophets say that God's name is held in vain and it's profaned because the Jews are called by God's name and they don't live righteous lives. And so God is blasphemed among nations. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When you pray for God's name to be hallowed, you are praying that you would live a righteous life because people know you're a Catholic. And they know that you love God. And if you love God and you're off living an immoral life, God's name is blasphemed and I actually think that's the bigger meaning of that petition in your phone. One last thing, Jews, by the way, so the name of, of God, Yahweh, they never say it. The only time a, a devout Jew is supposed to hear that name is on the Feast of Yom Kippur, when the high priest blesses the people with the blessing of Numbers 622. The Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, the Lord be gracious to you and lift up his face upon you. The Lord let his countenance shine upon you and give you his peace. When it says the Lord, it's using this. It's the only time a devout Jew would hear God's name. Um, what they said instead, whenever, like in scripture, whenever God's name appears, if they're reading out loud, they substitute it for Adonai. Adonai means Lord. And that, by the way, the, the translation of Adonai, that's Hebrew. Adonai, this is so much information. Um, does anybody know how Adonai gets translated into Greek? The Greek, the Greek translation of Adonai is Kyrie, which is Jesus' title in the New Testament. So when you come to Mass during Advent or Lent of Lords, 
And we say, Kyrie Elehison. That's Greek, Lord have mercy. That's the reverent title for the name of God. So cool. Freaking love this stuff. Right? Okay, so that's the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Okay, thy kingdom come. Um, this is so important. We've talked about this, but just to hammer it, repetition is another learning. Christianity is not the story about us escaping from a bad world to someplace better. Christianity is the story of God's kingdom breaking into this world. I hope that's happened for you in RCIA. I hope that God's kingdom, what is, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a place where a king reigns. When you pray the Our Father and you say, Thy kingdom come, Origen, right, who's one of my favorite scripture scholars, third century, late second and third century scripture scholar, Christian, Catholic priest, Origen says, uh, when you pray for the kingdom to come, you every time you pray the Our Father, you are praying that Jesus Christ would reign in your soul. That's what it means. Origin, uh, there's so many great quotes here. Origin has, when he talks about Joshua entering the promised land, Joshua is the Hebrew name of Jesus. Yeshua. If you watch the Passion of the Christ, when Mary refers to Jesus, she'll say Yeshua. So same name, right? Does anybody, how many nations are in the promised land when Joshua comes? It's a number we use a lot. <laughs> Seven. Seven. <laughs> There's seven, there are seven nations that are wicked living in the promised land. Origin understands that story to be a story about your soul. And he says, in your soul are the seven deadly sins. And when you pray for God's kingdom to come, you are praying that the true Joshua, Jesus Christ, comes to drive out the seven deadly sins from your soul. That he would reign there in peace. Love that. So every time you pray the Our Father, right, and usually, if you're like me, which I know you are, you pray and you're like, a kingdom come, that will be done on earth, this is heaven, give us a day. And you're just rushing through it. When you pray thy kingdom come, you are praying that God would come to reign in And you should think about that every time you say our Father. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, just a, this is kind of a sub-point of the last petition, right? But we pray that God's will happens not just anywhere, but here. Um, so let's go to the really quick to talk about how this is an Exodus prayer. We're going to see it more in a second. Um, in the Exodus story, where we saw this in Exodus 3, the Israelites learn God's name. On, in the Exodus, they're on their way to a kingdom. God's kingdom is breaking into this world. 
They're being freed from slavery so that they might live under God's rule instead of Pharaoh's. The kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of my favorites. Give us this day our daily bread. This is so freaking cool and it will blow your freaking mind. And if it doesn't, there's no hope for you. Um, so this is so cool. Oh, I love this. So the, the Our Father is fine. We pray it the way that we pray it now. We pray it so we can all pray it the same way. This has been debated from the very beginnings of Christianity. So there's, there's a, the Our Father is one of the hardest passages to translate in the entire New Testament. Seems like it shouldn't be, but it is. And this is one reason is this passage, our daily bread. So first of all, if we took that translation, when in the Exodus is there daily bread? Man. Right? And so the Our Father, as we have it, wants us to understand this as manna. And that is true, and we'll see why in a second. When you have daily bread, the manna, remember, is the bread of faith. Because the manna in Exodus chapter 16, you can only gather enough manna for today. Which means if God can't let me gather bread for tomorrow, but only today, that means I have to have faith. Because I have to trust that he's going to be there tomorrow. That's way harder than it sounds. Right? Like, I need that right now in my life. Like, I'm nervous about this. Taking on a second parish, I'm nervous about that. And I'm like, holy crap, Lord, I don't know that I'm up for this task. Right? And I need to know that you're going to be there tomorrow. Okay. Problem is, it doesn't say daily. The word for a day or daily in Greek is hemera. There's no more room on the board. Um, hemera is the word for day in Greek. The word for in the Our Father is dinamikai. You're not the worst at all. Um, you're the best. So the word in the Our Father, in every version we have of the Our Father in the New Testament, the word is um, epiousion. So I contrast that with hamera. That's the word for day or daily. The Our Father doesn't say daily bread. And here's, here's the cool thing. Um, there's been different translations proposed in history. Almost certainly what this means. So cool. So this is a conjunction in Greek. So epi is a preposition that means above or on top of. And usia is a word for being. So something natural or just a being of something. The best translation of this passage is supernatural. What's our supernatural bread? Every time you pray to our Father, you're asking for the Eucharist. Every time. 
Love that. Okay, so daily bread. By the way, you see, so you can pray foreign prayers in a very surface way. And you can pray them to a depth that you never dreamed possible. You can spend an hour in front of Jesus' presence in the Eucharist and just think through these things. Lord, how is your name being made holy in my life? How do people look at me and say, wow, I thought Catholics were just all hypocrites. But I met Brian, and he's different. How's God's name being made holy in your life? How is that happening? Okay. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. And, yeah, this is another one. So it doesn't say trespasses. It says debts. Ophelimata is a Greek word. It means debt. Um, spend forever on this. If you want to really understand this, Jesus gives a parable that explains this in Matthew chapter 18. Tell the parable of the unmerciful servant. In that parable, which is very much about forgiveness, in that parable, a king forgives servant number one 10,000 talents. Remember this? A talent is how much? Lovely mumble. So cute. It's a year's salary. Very good. So, can God, it's a year's salary for the average person. So, one talent is, is your year's salary. 10,000 talents is what this person owes the king. He goes to the king, he says, I can't do it. Sounds a lot like my life as a Christian. God, my debt before you is unforgivable. I can never pay it back. I can never do it. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your son. I don't deserve your mercy. Would you do it anyways? So the king says yes. So he forgives his debt, 10,000 talents. Servant number two owes servant number one 100 denarii. A denarius is a day's wage for the average person, right? People really hurt us. I have been hurt by many people in my life. If any of you do it, I... Don't even try. Do not cross me. Right? <laughs> um, people really hurt us. That's, it's a real thing. 100 denarii is not a small amount, but it's nothing like 10,000 talents. Nothing like it. And so this, in the parable, servant number one has been forgiven. Servant number two comes to servant number one, and he owes him 100 denarii, and he says, forgive me. I can't pay it back. And he refuses. Give us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Christians do not forgive others because it's okay or because they've gotten beyond it or whatever else. Christians forgive because they have been forgiven. Love them. Okay, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lead us not into... This is the last thing we'll kind of finish on tonight. Temptation. But deliver us from evil. Okay, this is another one. Pope Francis had, maybe you heard about this, proposed another translation. The problem was his...
proposed change didn't actually deal with the real problem. So he proposed, do not let us fall into temptation. But the problem with the translation is not the lead us not. That's not the problem. The problem is the word temptation. This is, again, a big debated issue. This is so freaking cool. You're going to love this. And this is going to tie this all together. So <clears throat> the, the Greek word here is parasmon. Should we be consistent? Let's do red for Greek. Parasmon is the Greek word. The normal word for temptation, and that word can mean temptation in certain contexts. But the normal Greek word for temptation is, sounds kind of fun, phlipsis. That's the normal word for temptation in Greek, is phlipsis. Um, did you ever think it's weird? Why would God lead me to be tempted? Yeah, it's weird. Of course God's not going to lead you to be tempted. So here's what this means, and this is going to blow your freaking mind, okay? Um, by the way, a couple other things. So just, again, notice the Exodus theme, right? God's name is there on the Exodus. They're on their way to a kingdom. They are given daily bread in Exodus 16. They are, to, to ransom someone means to release them from the debt of slavery. They have been brought out of the debt of slavery into freedom, um, and there, and here we go with temptation. The better probably translation of this would be the test, but here's what it means. The parasmos, the parasmon, the Jews believed, and the prophets talk about this quite a bit, is that before God's kingdom broke into this world, there would be a time of great temptation, not temptation, there would be a time of great suffering. And that this huge suffering would come upon the world. And this time of testing would precede God's kingdom breaking in. And the prophets refer to this as the parasmon. This is what the Our Father says. Um, here's, the, here's where this is so freaking cool. Um, what, so Jesus, we're, you and I are not, we're going to have temptations. We will have them. And in some ways, God allows us because it'll make you stronger. You have to face your trials. You have to face your crosses. Every one of us has them. Here's what this means. This, and here's where it all comes together. Jesus prays his version of the Our Father for his own life in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, two key petitions of the Our Father, there's really three, Jesus goes to the cross for the kingdom. All right, the last supper, remember we talked about the last supper, and he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. On the cross, Jesus, the, the gospel writers, especially John, was at pains to show us that Jesus reigns over the world in his crucifixion. He is lifted up. He has a crown on his head. He is clothed in purple, the color of kings. Over his head, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He draws all the world to himself. 
in Gethsemane, that will be done. Father, right? He begins that way. Father, if it is possible, let this cup not my will but your will be done Lord God when Jesus comes back to the apostles they're asleep and Jesus says to them he says the flesh is or the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak he says Rise and pray that you may not enter into tone perilous moment. A time of great suffering that would precede the kingdom. When we pray to our Father, we're not praying that God would not lead us into sin. God would never lead you into sin. What we're praying for is we're saying, God, keep this time of great suffering away from us. But here's, and I know we're over time, so I'll finish with this. Um, Jesus chose that for us. He goes to the cross for the kingdom to come. And if it is God's will, he will go through the great test. In the book of Numbers, and I have to look up the exact verse. In the book of Numbers, the Jews are put to the test to enter the promised land. And they, they fail, ultimately. But Jesus takes on the parasma, the time of great suffering, so that we can enter. Pretty sweet, huh? Deliver us from evil, by the way, can mean evil in general, or in the in the Greek it could mean the evil one. So this this last petition can mean deliver us from Satan. So, and also there's oh, there's so much. Think of Jesus's trials in the desert in Matthew four. <coughs> he is put to the test by Satan. Okay, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Next week we'll talk about contemplative prayer.